Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Marketing and Outreach. Joining me is my co-host for this episode, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, Bill Bray. Hello, Bill. Hello, Ward. So um, we're kind of in the fall groove here, I'm still working remotely, although the construction on the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center continues a pace. It's it's going up fast. It's kind of amazing. And we're on glide slope for a ribbon cutting in February, which seems amazing. I guess the issue is going to be, can people be present at the ribbon cutting? That's a, a small yeah. detail, but we're excited about that. And, and once we get this pandemic behind us, that'll be our home field. And we look forward to doing all kinds of events at that, uh, that state-of-the-art facility. So um, the governor of Maryland, right from the jump, de- declared that construction on facilities like the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center was essential. So work never stopped on that, um, although we've been working from home basically since we got back from the West Conference uh, in, in early to mid-March. So uh, that's the good news. Um, would like our audience to start to get prepped for our history conference that's coming up in October. There are ads uh, introducing the History Conference on usni.org, and click on those ads. You get all the details. It's Hollywood and the military is the theme this year, and we have folks like our good friend Dale Dye and some other filmmakers talking about how Hollywood has traditionally portrayed the military, and the History Conference is always a signature event in uh, our calendar in the fall time frame. Normally, we do it in person at the alumni uh, hall at the Naval Academy, and this year, as everything else, we're doing it virtually, but it should be an awesome presentation, so we ask everybody to mark their calendars for that one. What else is going on in your world? Um, we just put the October issue uh, to bed, went off to the uh, the printer a couple days ago, so we're on schedule. I think a lot of people, uh, their subscribers, are, are getting their, their issue late, and we have we have been checking that diligently the printer is shipping the magazine on time the september issue was shipped on uh 26 august um i didn't get mine till the 12th of september uh so this is a u.s postal service issue it is not an issue for the institute uh caused by the institute or our our printer in chicago area um and we're pressing out on the October, I'm sorry the november issue the marine corps themed issue um which we're underway uh, working on right now um, those are the big things in the periodicals. Speaking about uh, the lag in getting physical print copies of proceedings, just remember that the editorial team updates the issue at the end of each month. So if you're not getting your magazine, do check out usni.org, the proceedings channel, and that content is is up to date and, uh, and there for everybody. Also, don't forget that there are stuff posted between the issues um, how much per week generally, Bill, do you think we do on the digital side? Uh, we do between two and four uh, articles a week. That's outside of the, the print issue. The print issue, as you mentioned, is also loaded online at the end of the month. Um, so we probably did uh, – we've been doing quite a bit. Actually, lately we did 20 articles in June and 19 in July, et cetera. So we're doing uh, closer to four a week now. Okay, so the point there is don't leave the digital out of your scan. Um, if you receive the print issue of proceedings, I enjoy the print magazine, but also I, I have the digital in my, my scan and I recommend that all members do the same. 
And that inventory is just going to go up uh, if if the product team does its job going forward. So just keep that in your scan as well. I just thought of that when you're talking about lag. Because I, like you, didn't get my issue, the September issue, the aviation theme issue, until Saturday, um, which is pretty late, like record late. Um, so uh, anyway, okay, so let's uh, let's introduce our guests and talk about sprint football. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Admiral Jim McNeil. Um, he is the co-author of the book, uh, The Herndon Climb, uh, Naval Institute Release Press. He's also the coach of the Naval Academy lightweight football team. I met uh, Admiral McNeil, oh, more than a year ago or so at an Annapolis uh, alumni event, and uh, he told me the book was coming, so it piqued my interest way back then. Uh, we chatted about it a little bit. So uh, without further ado, Admiral McNeil, first off, how is the um, – we know what's we sort of know what's going on with varsity football, but how's it going with the, with the sprint team? Well, first of all, guys, really appreciate you having me on. And uh, other than the Herndon book, sprint football is, is certainly one of my favorite topics to discuss. So we are uh, in the midst of practice right now. Uh, our official season was postponed till the spring. However, our head coach, I'm not the head coach. Our head coach is Major Jason DeWald. And he got with Army's head coach, and they decided that uh, because we have similar testing protocols and we're in this uh, service academy bubble, that we were going to play West Point twice this fall. So Sunday, October 4th at West Point will be the first game. The Whether it'll be a, a exhibition game or a scrimmage or, or, or something between the two, we haven't quite uh, figured out the details. But then October 18th, Sunday, October 18th at 1300, uh, we are hopefully going to be playing at Rip Miller Field on the yard so we can get a lot of mids in attendance. Uh, will be the end star game uh, for the Navy Sprint football team. And for those that don't know what Navy Sprint football is, Bill mentioned lightweight football. Uh, the old timers, uh, like Bill and I, remember it as 150s. Uh, the weight limit now is 178 pounds. When it started in 1934, it was 150 pounds because that was the average weight of a United States male. <laughs> okay. Well, if you guys are old timers, I don't know what that makes me. Um, so, um, so uh, Jim, is that open to the public or is it uh, just brigade only attendance there for that football game versus Army? Well, they've, if... If it is on the yard, uh, we're hoping that we haven't announced we, they haven't announced it. We're hoping that we can get uh, anybody that has access to the yard there. Uh, if it's at the stadium, then it will be just uh, similar to what and we don't call it the varsity. We call them the big boys. Uh, what the big boys did against BYU where it was just the teams uh, and the staffs. So that's why we're kind of hoping to, to get it at Rip Miller so that we can have uh, at least the mids in attendance and uh, anybody else that has yard access, but I'm probably talking above my pay grade right now, so I should probably be quiet. <laughs> well, I, I guess if there are any questions, we should refer them to the Navy Sports website. Correct. Um, and and Correct. Uh, I'm sure uh, Strass will handle any queries that come his way. So let's let's pivot to the book. The book is called The Herndon Climb, A History of the United States Naval Academy's Greatest Tradition. You co-wrote it with Scott Tomaszewski. Um, and I think that's not hyperbole. I think anybody who is an academy grad would certainly remember their Herndon experience. 
Um, and so I, I think arguably it is the greatest tradition. So let, let's talk about uh, the book and, and how you guys have laid it out. I think it's a fantastic effort. Um, but let's start with the, the man, uh, Herndon. Captain Herndon was the commanding officer of the USS Central America. And on September 12th, 1857, the SS Central America uh, went down with about 500 people uh, on board, uh, as well as several tons of gold. So, uh, and it was a merchant ship. Now, you might ask, why was Captain Herndon on a merchant ship? So, this was post California gold rush, and there, there were a lot of ships that were getting gold, passengers and the gold. Uh, and other, uh, you know, banks would buy gold, et, et cetera, et cetera. And these ships would fl- would go from San Francisco. This was obviously pre-Panama Canal. And they would go all the way around the coast of Central America or South America, I should say, uh, and, try- and, and bring that gold to the East Coast. Uh, what they discovered was, obviously, that's a long way to go. And a lot of the ships didn't make it. So what they ended up doing was they had a, a, a series of a, a certain number of ships that would essentially go from San Francisco down to Panama and back. They would unload everything from the ship, take it across uh, overland, across Panama, and then they would have another fleet of ships on the East Coast that would then take them up to, to Philadelphia, New York, etc., uh, they it actually was was faster and safer to do it that way. So uh, and because the Federal Reserve Bank at the time had purchased gold uh, from San Francisco, there was a Navy because it was a federal entity. There was a Navy captain in charge of this merchant ship. So that's uh, why a, a Navy officer was on a merchant ship and they ran into a hurricane and Captain Herndon fought to save the ship. Uh, for uh, a couple of days. Uh, now, these there were about 100 women and children on the ship because a lot of folks had kind of made their fortune and were coming back with their families. And so one of the things that Captain Herndon was able to do is he was able to signal some other ships in the area, and they saved every woman and child on the ship. Now, obviously, couldn't be said for the men, but every uh, woman and, and, and their ch- all the women and children were saved. And once it became obvious that the ship was going to go down, Captain Herndon, as uh, as he had predicted uh, at dinner a couple nights before, uh, that's that's documented by some survivors. Uh, they said, uh, you know, he he told people, hey, if anything ever happens to the ship, I'm going down with the ship. So Captain Herndon put on his dress uniform and his sword, went to the helm, went to the pilot house, stood at the helm, and went and literally went down with the ship. Now, when these women got back, got uh, these women that were saved, got to wherever they were uh, brought to, Philadelphia, New York, wherever, uh, they gave interviews to the local papers. Now, the telegraph had just been invented, and so this is really kind of the first story uh, in the United States that really went viral, if we could use that term in 1857. And these women just told the story of how Captain Herndon, uh, you know, was so, uh, you know, what, what everybody did to try to save the ship and, and, and how courageous he was. Now, uh, Captain Herndon's brother-in-law was Matthew Fontaine Maury, 
who's been in the news uh, recently for some other things, but he's uh, known as the father of, of oceanography. And they were very, very, not only their brother-in-law, they were very, very close. And so Matthew Montaigne, or Matthew Fontaine Maury was the one who came up with this idea of, of putting the Herndon Monument uh, at the Naval Academy. And one of the interesting things about the Herndon Monument is that it's in its original place. So if you, it's, it's the only monument on the yard that has never been moved. So if you see in any old picture of the yard, you can always kind of orient yourself based on where Herndon is on that picture. I'll tell you, as a midshipman, of course, we all had to do yard gouge and, and know what the different monuments stood for. But you don't understand that history unless you go back and reread it, understand it. And that's one of the many gems in this book. Well, and the other thing about uh, Herndon was pre, uh, previously when he was lieutenant, he was also a, a well-known from uh, – an expedition he did to the Valley of the Amazon. So in 1851, he got orders from the Department of the Navy that said, explore the Valley of the Amazon. And that was the extent of the orders. So, uh, you know, from a message to Garcia standpoint, he said, OK, I'm going to explore the Valley of the Amazon. So he got a, a, a crew down. They went down to, to Peru and they they essentially, you know, he split his team up into two parts, but he essentially walked across South America. And while he was walking across South America, he kept a very, very detailed journal of his experiences. He would boil water to see how, you know, what the various elevations were. He drew pictures of the various plants and animals that he saw. Uh, he, you know, it had to be very physically arduous to do this, but he kept this very, very detailed journal almost on a daily basis. So it takes him about a year. He gets back to D.C. and you know, like a good Navy man, he types up his report or handwrites it in, in, in manuscript and, and turns it in and people start to read it and it be, people are very interested in it. So they continue to print more copies because so many people are interested in reading it and it eventually gets published and becomes a bestseller. So what was, what was really interesting was to read his personal journal, journal of the year he spent down in South America and then to, to be able to kind of relive his last moments on the SS Central America. Uh, and if I could, uh, Gary Kinder uh, wrote the foreword for our book. And Gary Kinder is the author of Ship of Gold and the Deep Blue Sea, which is a fascinating story of the recovery of the SS Central America, which had really had never been done before. It went down at about 8,000 feet. Uh, off the off Cape Hatteras in North Carolina, and they really they didn't have a really good idea where it was. They had, you know, they had some some positions that had been reported, uh, so they had three or four different uh, potential positions, and it's just a fascinating story. It took Gary ten years to write it, uh, to do all the research of of how they were able to find the shipwreck and bring the gold back up. But one of the things that Gary did, one of the things that took him so long, was that he combed through all of these newspaper accounts of these women that had been rescued and based upon their accounts uh, is able was able to in his book really give almost a minute by minute accounting of what uh, of the fighting you know in the storm and fighting to save the ship and so for me 
after I, I felt you feel like you know him from reading the his his journal, but then to see how brave he was uh, going down with the ship, it was it was just a really really fascinating account. And the Herndon Monument is a you know a worthy monument to to a really really great man. Well, Bill brings up a good point about grads where we don't appreciate our yard gouge at the time. And then when we come back to revisit it, um, it really comes to life. And I, I'm reminded that Warden Field is named for the founder of the Naval Institute. That's a fact I did not know until I came to work for the Naval Institute, uh, even after being a member of the Naval Institute since I was a lieutenant. Um, and also when I was at the end of my career, I, I was on the staff of the Naval Academy. Um, and I know you've, uh, in the acknowledgments, you say thank you to Jim Cheevers. And I worked with Jim Cheevers on a number of projects, and he made me realize some of the history that I was wholly ignorant of as a mid. And and so this is exactly why we entreat grads, parents of current mids, anybody who cares about the Naval Academy to read this book. So, Jim, what year was the Hernan Monument erected? 1860. Okay, so just for frame of reference, so during the Civil War, the Naval Academy goes to Newport, comes back after the war, so we've just barely got a toehold on what the Naval Academy looks like. Um, and, and I use a slide in my presentation to various commands and schools that is the Naval Academy in 1873. And you can see Maryland Avenue, which is a dirt road that's going through this picture and so forth and so on. So 1860, that I would say not only is that, as you've said, this is in its original spot, that's got to be one of the first monuments that was on the, the grounds. Right, exactly. And, you know, the Naval Academy had only been around for about 15 years at that point. Okay, so... And so pro so probably that's why, you know, probably when Maury said, hey, I want to do this uh, uh, tribute to my brother-in-law, you know, probably no one said, hey, we got a bunch of other monuments here. They probably said, sure, that's great. We got plenty of open space. So this is Maury of Maury Hall fame, right? Yes. Who's Maury, controversial Maury because he went to the Confederacy, right? There are two... Yes. Buildings on the yard still that are named for Confederates, Buchanan and Maury. Um, right. and, and so that's just sort of in the, in the news these days. It's um, in the news. Some more yeah. fun facts. Um, so let's talk about how did the Herndon climb come to be, starting with the snake dance? Again, we, we have a, a, a good reference. Uh, and Jim Cheevers, you mentioned, he's, you know, for anybody that knows Jim, I mean, he knows everything about everything. And so my, my when we... When we got the go-ahead to, to do the book, uh, I sat down uh, with Jim for about two hours and just, you know, had my tape recorder running and and, and just uh, listened to him tell about, you know, kind of everything. So he gave us certainly a good background, and then we were able to, to verify it through, uh, you know, the Nimitz Library at the Naval Academy has all the old lucky bags, has all the old reef points, and there's a lot of really interesting information in there. But so... But where the Herndon Monument is between the, the chapel, the road that goes in front of the chapel and the Herndon Monument used to be known as Lover's Lane. And there was a series of benches there. And there were hedges that were that kind of protected the people that were sitting there. And these this was obviously back in the early 1900s. And everybody was a lot more prim and proper than they are today. So the uh, on Sunday afternoons, the upper class would would get their drag, their 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 you know their female companion. Of course, there were no women at the academy then, uh, 
and they would, you know, proceed to, to walk down lover's lane and probably sit on the bench. And if no one was looking, you know, maybe get a quick peck on the cheek or something. And this area was uh, strictly forbidden for the plebes. And so the plebes were not allowed to be there. And so uh, fast forward to the early 1900s, and this is when uh, Thompson Field uh, is where graduation was held. It's no longer there. I think that's where Alumni Hall is now. No, it's where uh, Lejeune Hall is now. Oh, Lejeune. Okay, so yeah. Thompson Field. I learned that today. So, uh, and I Because Lejeune Hall was <laughs> built when I was a mid. That's how I know this. There was oh, still okay. a Thompson Field there when I was during the first few years at the academy. So, uh, yeah, and I didn't know about Warden Field either. So, so I'm, I'm learning as well. That's why the Proceedings Podcast exists, for knowledge, (laughs) knowledge to the people. So, so the the point is that, you know, we think of at least, you know, the, you know, the people, uh, you know, most people feel, you know, view Naval Academy graduation as being the stadium, but it, you know, it used to be obviously on the grounds of the Academy in the yard. And so the, uh, the plebes in the early 1900s decided that, uh, somebody probably you know some person and then it kind of just spread is that they were going to flaunt the fact that now that they you know right as soon as graduation's over for those that are not grads as soon as graduation the firsties throw their hats in the air and they and they are now commissioned uh all the up uh, underclass that are sitting in the stands pull out their sh- new shoulder boards from their pockets and put their new shoulder boards on because everybody moves up and so these newly minted uh, youngsters were would run to Lover's Lane and kind of flaunt the fact that they could be there now. And then they started doing this snake dance, which is, you know, everybody kind of connected at the hips. And, you know, and it just, it, uh, uh, you know, just kind of being in the face to everybody that they were doing this. And then it, it kind of evolved to, hey, let's take a picture in front of Herndon. And then, of course, you can't just take a picture. Let's take a picture with you know, a couple people on top of somebody and, hey, wouldn't it be a cool picture if somebody was on top of Herndon? So this thing evolved over the years. And eventually, you know, as through our research, and again, this not, there's no, we, we, there was no clear cut thing that we could find. What we determined was that eventually the upper class really got irritated at these newly minted youngsters who they probably viewed still as plebes who were climbing all over the Herndon Monument and, and, and just kind of being a little bit too rady uh, for their own good. And so someone came up with the idea of, hey, let's grease this thing to make it harder for them to get to the top of this. And so that's how the climb evolved. And then, uh, then, it, became, then it, be, you know, it, it became standardized. The first class that really did it uh, was my dad's class, class of 62, where it was actually timed. And eventually it became not after a graduation event, it became before graduation and that, you know, the plebes no more. And that's how it all kind of evolved. So it's sort of the first, I mean, it's not officially the first event of commissioning week, um, but it kind of is the first uh, event that everybody attends and, and, and cares about each, each late May timeframe. So when I did it, um, we had a moat, a mud moat dug out around the bottom of it that was watered down and it was kind of dangerous because the mud was almost up to the, your mid calf um, and heavily greased. Um, and so that has gone through different, as you mentioned in the book, based on the superintendent's 
safety quotient, I guess we could say, um, they've either uh, modified it or completely changed it. So what's the history of how the, uh, the you mentioned your dad's class was the official, first one that's timed. Um, you know, it starts with the cannon and the plebes run out of T-court and, and so forth and so on. But how, how it would have been some of the sort of highlights and lowlights of how Hernan has been executed over the years? Yeah, great question. So you mentioned uh, the superintendents and, and their view of, uh, of the event. Uh, Admiral Fowler, Jeff Fowler, is really the only one that, uh, in, in recent memory, and again, there was some ungreased climbs um, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, but once it kind of got a foothold as a tradition, it became kind of a, you know, kind of a big deal for everybody. And, uh, but Admiral Fowler, uh, who we interviewed in the book, uh, really had kind of different take on it. And his, his take was and is that, you know, traditions are relative. So he's, you know, and he, he, he makes a lot of good points. You know, hey, if you talk to somebody from the class of 1950, they really didn't have a formal Herndon climb. So to them, it's not a tradition. So and he just he, he never he never viewed it as a tradition that that helped make midshipmen better officers. And this whole idea of sea trials, which is uh, based on the Marine boot camp battle st- uh, uh, crucible, which is which the Navy adopted for battle stations, is this idea of, of doing teamwork and doing more military related activities. So Admiral Fowler's idea was, you know, it's really not a tradition if you look at it over the course of the of the entire life of the academy. And really, from a safety issue, it, it is. And he likens it to the Texas A&M bonfire, uh, where they, uh, had, I think 11, uh, you know, kids killed because they had these huge, I guess, telephone poles that they would light on fire for the big bonfire before they played the university of Texas and something happened and it fell over and, you know, killed, you know, killed a bunch of the kids. And of course they banned it after that, but he likened it to that. And, you know, his point is if God forbid somebody gets hurt, uh, everyone's going to say, why the heck did you ever do this? Now, we did interview Commander Kelly Lang for the book, who for the climb that we covered the class uh, in 2019 for the class of 2022, they, uh, you know, they, they, they look at safety very seriously, and there's a lot of supervision out there. Uh, but again, something could happen. It could be a freak accident. So really, uh, uh, I think that uh, if you look going forward, and hopefully we'll have more Herndon climbs. I mean, it's if you look at any of the pictures in the book, it's hard to hard to look at that through the lens of a of a COVID world, right? With everybody right next to each other, and I'm not sure it's going to work if everybody's wearing masks. But certainly for 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 the book's sake, we hope that uh, there is it isn't just hey, remember there used to be a Herndon climb. We hope that's not the case. But um, yeah, so so the superintendent. Admiral Fowler was really the only one that, that kind of felt that way. And then when Admiral Miller came in, he immediately just, you know, said, hey, we're going to we're going to do this. So uh, that's an interesting story. Uh, the other thing, you, you know, you talked about what are some highlights, lowlights. Uh, so uh, at the Naval Institute Press, one of you know, when you submit a book proposal for any inspiring authors out there, they're going to require you to do a sample chapter, which we did. And our sample chapter was on the class of ninety eight. Uh, and their climb was four hours, over four hours, four hours and five minutes. And so it's it's a really interesting story uh, about, well, first of all, how it happened, 
why it took so long. Uh, the, the person that got to the top is a really interesting uh, person. So that, that's, that's one of them. Uh, we talk about, we have a chapter in there uh, about how the women were treated in the early 80s. And we, uh, you know, when I, when I went out and tried to get s- stories, because we had, you know, we had an o- outline, so don't tell, you know, don't tell Susan, Susan Brooke, but, you know, we didn't exactly follow our table of contents we submitted, because really this, the, the stories we would get went in a lot of different directions. And so some of the stories we thought we were going to, we didn't do it, but we did some of the other ones. But uh, when we went out and tried to find stories through social media, et cetera, different, you know, word of mouth, I probably had half a dozen women from the early 80s who essentially said the same thing, which was, are you going to tell the true story of Herndon as, as it relates to the women during our time, or are you going to tell the sanitized version that makes everybody look good? That was essentially what they said. And we said, no, we are going to tell the story as it was. Now, I had an inkling of that uh, being the prevailing attitude because my wife is also a grad. She's also class of 86. And when 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 I first told her about this idea of Herndon and, uh, you know, it's the second greatest feeling I've ever had in my life of, of, of being done with plebe year, you know, she didn't share the enthusiasm. She she felt and still does that it was really the way the women were treated was just more of the same. So to her, Herndon is not a happy memory. So when we wrote the, when we wrote the, uh, and, and just, you know, Scott wrote most of the book, uh, you know, I did all most of the research, but when we wrote the chapter on women. We have a lot of stories of women uh, that uh, I think anybody, I mean, the old guys on this podcast certainly understand it, but it, when we tell some of our sponsor mids and kids I coach, et cetera, you know, today's midshipmen about what happened to the women back then, they can't believe it. To them, it's it's like talking about something in the Middle Ages. So in, in, in a sense, it's really good because we've, we've evolved past that. But, you know, it's just like with history, you know, it, it is part of the history. And so, so when do you think, when do you think that turned? Because I, I'm an 88 grad two years after you. And I would, I can't speak for my, uh, female classmates, but I might suspect they would have a similar view as your wife. Um, you know, when, at what point in this story did it, did it, do you think it's changed and has it completely changed? I mean, I, I don't think mids, uh, male mids are, are pulling women's legs down, you know, trying to prevent them from getting up there or anything like that anymore. Um, thank goodness. But, uh, but it, it still hasn't been a woman get to the top that has not happened yet. And, um, so in your research, when do you think the sort of the culture changed on it? Yeah, that's a good question. So we, we, you know, we interviewed women all the way through the mid nineties and it was still happening. Uh, I think that probably starting in the, in the early two thousands on, it got to be a little bit less. And I think the other thing was, and I don't know about the class of 88, but uh, in our class of 86, we started with 100 women and graduated 63. Okay, I think, and I don't have the exact stats, but I think the, cl- the new class of 2024 has 324 women. So just by increasing the number of women and not making it, first of all, they're, they're, more, they're not necessarily more accepted. It's just there's, there's no one there that can remember a time before there was women, right? It's, it's kind of like women on ships. 
you know, when I, I, I teach an ethics class at the academy as an adjunct and I tell them, you know, when my first two sh- you know, my two ships, I didn't have any women. They, they can't believe that. Right. Because of them, yeah. women have always been on ships. Right. And, but yeah. the old timers, there were, weren't, weren't any women on combatants. Right. So, uh, it, it, it took, it, it took a while, but when we, so we watched the 2018 and the 2019 climb, we saw nobody being pulled down. Uh, and again, in talking to current mids, no one's ever heard of anybody being pulled down. Um, and there, there, there will be a win. There was, uh, in the 2019 climb, there was a, a third, you know, you need kind of four, uh, uh, four ladders of people with steps of people. And there were actually a whole ring of, gr- uh, of women that were at one point there. But as anybody's been to a Herndon climb, you know, uh, uh, this stuff collapses, uh, you know, after about a the second. The last 10 time. feet are the hardest. <laughs> right. So at one point there was a bunch of, there was a women, women, group of women who had made a ring, which again, in the old days, because as I said in, in the book, I can remember being at the bottom uh, at the base and I didn't really know what was going on. But I do know that anytime I saw a girl get get close to the monument or try to climb up the monument, they got pulled down. Yeah, it's like, uh, just so the audience it. understands, it's like a game of Chenga. Um, and, and if you would willfully pull out a load bearing block and let the thing fall, that's how it was, you know? And so I remember my Herndon climb in the summer of 79, um, where we had females in key positions, right? And you'd see a hand reach out, out of the, the sea of bodies and grab her by the back of the t-shirt and just willfully pull her out. Like, and she would fall pretty far to, to Admiral Fowler's safety's concerns. And then the whole thing would fall down and you'd go, why did you do that? You know, I mean, I got it. You're a misogynist. Uh, but, you know, and so I, I like you, uh, saw the 2019 and noted that uh, that it seemed attitudinally that there was no issue with them ascending uh, in previous years. They would have either subtly or somehow willfully been yanked out of the mix. Um, so I think the numbers and the attitudes are one and the same thing. Like you said, I think the the latest class had 24% of the class is female. That was a record um, for the last plebe class. Um, and so, right, as you've said, culturally, these are the same folks who've done co-ed kitty kick soccer. They've, you know, they don't have the, the stuff that we did about female integration that we were dealing with, however attitudes were. Um, so I, I concur with you that it, it won't be a big deal really when a female is the no. one who reaches the top and so yeah. forth and so on. I mean, the book is very well organized, starting with the history of Hernan as we've gone over, and then then uh, the sort of noteworthy climbs. And you've talked about the four-hour one, which is god-awful. I think mine was two hours and something, you know, and as Thank we've you. already sort of hinted at, is you have this initial surge of energy, and you're like, yeah, we got it, and then boom, you're, you know, it comes down, and and pretty soon the crowd interest sort of wanes and people go to the food trucks and they come back. Is it still going on? And, you know, the, you hear right. another cannon go off every 15 minutes. Um, and uh, it is a spectator sport, as you say. It's on YouTube. ESPN is there. The Washington Post is there uh, covering it as if it was a sporting event. Um, uh, but it can it's a lengthy one. It's like watching cricket. You know, it's not like watching uh, <laughs> football. Right. And, exactly. and, and so yeah. um, what were some other uh, highlights uh, in terms of how Herndon has been sliced and diced over the years? Well, another fun story is uh, is a is a group of, uh, of guys and it's told through the viewpoint of, of these two gentlemen. And they were both Napsters. 
and so they were, um, you know, older. And so, um, and we, and they, we hope the statute of limitations is, is expired, but they went out illegally the night before Herndon and went out into downtown Annapolis and, uh, uh, yes, I know it's, it's, I know it's, it's crazy. That doesn't happen. That never happens. So they, uh, they had a little too much to drink. And so, uh, they were gathered out there and again, they were, you know, older than the, the kids would come right in from high school. And so they are just kind of, uh, hanging, milling about, not feeling very well as, as, uh, people are when they drink too much. And so they, uh, they sound the, the cannon and everybody sprints, you know, as, uh, as we've talked about, it's, you know, there's a lot of excitement at the beginning and then it does kind of, it's like a cricket match. That's a good analogy. It's just kind of settles in a little bit. Uh, and so they, uh, did not share the enthusiasm and jubilation of their classmates. They just, essentially kind of sauntered uh, gingerly down, uh, you know, down the tea court and just found a, a kind of a nice quiet spot under a tree, just figuring that, uh, you know, they just kind of sit this one out because they just weren't feeling very well. And so uh, this thing's going on and, you know, it hits, uh, you know, we talked about the cannon goes off. And so at, at one point, you know, they're, they're a couple hours in and one of them says to the other, because Liberty, you know, they were both going on leave as soon as Herndon was over and they had flights and one of them looks at his watch and, and says, you know, um, we're starting to get an extremist here a little bit because we still got to get cleaned up. We got to get to the airport. We got to, you know, we want to miss our flights and you know, there's, they're, they're not making any progress right now. I mean, we might be here a while. <laughs> so they said, okay, well let's go take care of this thing. So they walk over to, they walk over, they pick out three football players that they went to naps with they set them at the, they said, okay, spread it, you know, make a hole. They put these three football players at the base. One of them got up on top of them. And then the other guy who was a SEAL, prior enlisted SEAL, he gets to the top or, or he gets on the next guy. The guy that's in the middle now, he does a single-handed overhead press of the guy up to the top. They pulls the Dixie cup off, puts the combo cover off. Those five essentially do it. They drop down and they go, let's go on Liberty. <laughs> so I have to ask you, so I have, I sponsored two mids from the class of 2023. Um, both wonderful, just tremendous young ladies, um, Eve Warden and Emily Etrich. I'm going to give them a shout out here. Um, and when the whole thing was canceled or postponed, perhaps, you know, it, I mean, it hurt me personally as a, as a graduate to think this is a class for the first time in, I mean, I don't know how long where there might not ever be a ceremony. Um, so, um, you, I read the Capitol article yesterday. It seems like there's still going to be a ceremony at some point. I think, is that your understanding that they will, uh, the class of 23 will do this at some point? Yeah, they're from everything I've read and, and certainly I'm not in the know, uh, on this, but from everything I've read and what I've heard is that they do want to do that. I, I, Again, I could just hypothesize from the Daunt and Soup's point of view. Uh, they probably don't want to have that class be the only one that's not done it, uh, because it's it just that you know it would just be kind of not a stain, but it would just be something that would kind of mark them as as a class. And and I think that they and I and again I we, I know we we sponsor mids as well, and they want to do it. 
So uh, I'm thinking that, you know, again, once we get past this COVID stuff, you know, maybe they do like in baseball a day-night doubleheader uh, and they do, you know, the class of 23 and then they do the class of 24. They split it up on different days. You know, one of the things that they do, you talked about the moat and the mud pit. Uh, what they what they do, uh, well, at least what they did last time they did it is, you know, they, re- they resawed that area under Herndon you know, immediately afterwards. In fact, if you go to Herndon an hour after the climb's over, you know, they're already resodding it. So, cause it gets so, you know, it gets so trashed with the water and the grease and everything. So we hope there's going to be one. Certainly, uh, our partners at the Naval Institute press, uh, who are help- hopefully going to, you know, we'd like to sell more books. And if there was, uh, two climbs in 2021, that it would be absolutely fantastic for us. Uh, so we, we certainly hope that's going to happen. Uh, I think it'll happen. I think that, you know, this, this uncharted territory we're in, uh, I think the Daunt and the soup have done as best job as they can of trying to kind of keep everything as, as normal as possible. And I just don't think they want that class to have, have to not never having had the chance to climb it. Well, when we talk about Admiral Fowler's concerns and how he was talking about, well, they have the crucible and, and, and so there are other things that they face during the course of instruction as midshipmen that sort of are germane to the things you got to leverage when you're a naval officer. But as I'm thinking, just sort of off the top of my head, what are the things that mattered in terms of my ability to dig deep, you know? And so I'm thinking, you know, showed up to I-Day, as soon as we said the oath, we walked into just a barrage of getting yelled at, right? And and just kept going from that point forward. survived my first pop quiz where I got a 40 um, on a chemistry pop quiz and just freaked out that I was going to flunk out. Um, And then it was Herndon, you know, like we're saying, there was a point during the Herndon climb because I was part of the first wave. I guess Tom Hanks would, would play me in the movie of my Herndon climb. So I was part of the first wave and, you know, we go up and it looks like we're going to make it. I remember I was linked. I was probably, as you mentioned, sort of four levels. I was on the third level linked arm in arm and I'm looking at my mom who is standing at the on the steps of the chapel you know and she she gestures to me and I'm linked like arms and she gives me like you said the military press gesture like push the guy up on your shoulders <laughs> I'm like how am I going to do that right and then we fell and so there was a point in there where you're trying to get you know stay out of the mud because at one point I went face down in the mud and that wasn't too cool in terms of Admiral Fowler's concerns um, but you're like I don't think we're going to be able to do this right I mean that hits you and right. won't be embarrassing if we don't ever do this. And that's right. how you get a four-hour climb. Um, but you have to go, I mean, the resolute sort of gumption you have to muster up as a class matters, right? And it's just like the first time you get pump, punched in the face and play boxing and so forth and so on, right? So I, I submit to the point of will the class of 23 have to do one or get to do one that it's fundamental to the USNA experience. And so hopefully they do, because even as youngsters, um, and there's probably some argument in the yard about whether they're officially youngsters yet. Right. um, You know, and, and so let's, let's say they need to do it just for the sort of check in the block or the milestone, Mm -hmm. like the tower jump, like everything else we've done. And we're bonded as grads around this one's important. So the book is The Herndon Climb, A History of the United States Naval Academy's Greatest Tradition. We've been talking to Rear Admiral James McNeil, Supply Corps USN Retired, and his co-author is Scott Tomaszewski. It's a new one from Naval Institute Press. Again, this gets the lauded five-star Proceedings Podcast review. If you are a parent or a grad, you've got to have this book, or if you're a mid. 
uh, it's it's really going to make that climb mean more to you uh, after you read it. So congratulations on a triumph, Jim, and thanks for joining us on the Proceedings Podcast today. Thanks for having me, guys. I really enjoyed it. All right, that'll do it for this episode. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you.